Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 216. Better late than never, right? Today's big Bible question, is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament an appearance of Jesus? So hello, friends. Happy Thursday to you. My apologies for the lateness of the podcast release today. As I mentioned on the announcement recorded on my iPhone, we took a short trip to Fresno and I left my equipment at home. Alas, today's episode will be fairly short and hopefully sweet. And our Bible readings include Judges 13, Acts 17, Jeremiah 26, and Mark chapter 12. Our focus passage is Judges 13, which is the very beginning of the narrative of Samson, one of the most famous figures in the Old Testament. In this passage, the unnamed mother of Samson is working in a field and she encounters an angel, apparently a very special angel. So let's read the passage and then discuss our Bible mystery of the day. Judges chapter 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are unable to conceive and have no children, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean, for indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair, because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. Then the woman went and told her husband, A man of God came to me. He looked like the awe-inspiring angel of God. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. He said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Therefore, do not drink wine or beer and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth until the day of his death. Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, let the man of God you sent come again to us and teach us what we should do for the boy who will be born. God listened to Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman. She was sitting in the field and her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman ran quickly to her husband and told her, The man who came to me the other day has just come back. So Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he asked, Are you the man who spoke to my wife? I am, he said. Then Manoah asked, When your words come true, what will be the boy's responsibilities and work? The angel of the Lord answered Manoah, Your wife needs to do everything I told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink wine or beer. And she must not eat anything unclean. Your wife must do everything I have commanded her. Please stay here, Manoah told him, and we will prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to him, If I stay, I won't eat your food, but if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to him, What is your name so that we may honor you when your words come true? Why do you ask my name, the angel of the Lord asked him, since it is beyond understanding. Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered them on a rock to the Lord, who did something miraculous while Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up from the altar to the sky, the angel of the Lord went up in its flame. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell face down on the ground. The angel of the Lord did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are certainly going to die, he said to his wife, because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, 
If the Lord had intended to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering from us, and he would not have shown us all these things or spoken to us like this. So the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew, and the Lord blessed him. Then the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So there are many angels that appear in the Bible. We've already discussed that there are at least two different ranks of angels, with archangels being somehow above regular angels. In the Old Testament, the the angel of the Lord, with emphasis on the definite article the there, seems to stand out among all the other angels. For one, as we see in Judges 6 in the story of Gideon and this chapter, the angel of the Lord will accept worship and sacrifices from people unlike regular angels like you see in Revelation 22.9 where the angel there tells John that he is merely a fellow servant and should not be worshipped. Further, the Old Testament seems to weave in and out in some places of using angel of the Lord and Lord, remembering here that Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is the Hebrew name Yahweh, which is God's personal name. Consider, for instance, Exodus 3. Exodus 3, verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. So who's speaking here from the burning bush? Is it the angel of the Lord, as in verse 2, or is it the Lord Yahweh God, as in verse 4? Well, it would seem that, in this instance at least, the angel of Yahweh is, in fact, Yahweh. This is also the conclusion that Hagar, servant of Sarai and Abraham, reached in Genesis 16 after encountering the angel of the Lord. For it says in verse 9, The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will give have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. The man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord or Yahweh who spoke to her, you are El Roy. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? Now, El Roy stands for the God who sees. El is God, Roy is who sees. So as we've discussed before, it appears quite clearly that the angel of the Lord is somehow God in at least some of these passages. Now, could the angel of the Lord be Jesus in a pre-incarnational form? I think that's possible. Possibly because the Lord, or Yahweh, has a conversation with the angel of the Lord in Zechariah 1. And that sort of shows that there is a distinctness between the two, at least in that passage. But more because of a clue that we might, and understand I'm being sort of non-definitive here, but a clue we might see in uh, the angel of Yahweh's answer to Manoah's question here in Judges 13. So Judges 13, 18, 
Why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord asked him, since it is beyond understanding. Well, and then right after that, uh, when that happens, uh, Manoah says, we're certainly going to die because we've seen God. So first notice that Manoah equated the angel of Yahweh with God himself. And maybe even more important, notice the answer to Manoah's question. In the Hebrew, the answer of the angel of Yahweh could be translated as wonderful, as in, why do you ask my name, seeing as it is wonderful? Now, that is how the ESV and the NASB and other Bible translations translate this passage. And that reminds me of the Isaiah description of Jesus in Isaiah 9, where it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, most Bible translations render that passage just like the CSB there does, as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, others, however, render it Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma, Mighty God, comma, Eternal Father, comma, Prince of Peace, with Wonderful being its own name. In other words, Jesus will be wonderful, he will be counselor, he will be mighty God, he will be eternal father and prince of peace. And the reason why that happens is because we don't have punctuation in the Hebrew that tells us whether or not the name is wonderful counselor or whether the name is wonderful, comma, counselor, comma, mighty God. Now, both of the Hebrew words that we're talking about here, wonderful, in Isaiah 9, and wondrous, or the, the I think the CSB says, uh, since it's beyond knowing, or, or something like that, both of those Hebrew names actually come from the same root word, and they both can be translated as wondrous or wonderful. So, is that a clue that Jesus is the angel of the Lord? Because the angel of the Lord that speaks to Manoah says, my name is wonderful or wondrous. And Isaiah tells us that Jesus's name will be something almost exactly the same, wonderful. So the best we can say is maybe. But I do believe it is a pretty strong indicator, a definite maybe, that it might be that the angel of the Lord, at least in this case of appearing in Judges 13, could be a pre-incarnational appearance of Jesus. Remember when uh, Jesus is is telling the critics in John, he's, he's say, he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Well, that sort of harkens back to the Exodus 3 passage, and it's very interesting language that Jesus uses. So, can we be definitive here? And the answer is no, as Don Stewart from blueletterbible.org will show us. And we'll read his uh, a couple of paragraphs from his article on this question to close us out. He says, The context must determine the identity of the angel of the Lord. If the angel of the Lord was, in some instances, Jesus Christ coming in a temporary body, then the term angel stresses the basic meaning of the word, one who was sent. God the Son was sent by God the Father. Therefore, the word angel in that context would be referring to the office of the one sent, a messenger. This is in keeping with the nature of the mission of Jesus Christ. He is the one whom the Father has sent. John 8, 18 says, I am the one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me 
bears witness of me. If, however, it is one of the angelic hosts who is referred to as the angel of the Lord, then it is the nature of the being that is being stressed, one of the heavenly hosts, a created spirit being. On a number of occasions in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appeared, it seems to be the Lord himself. The angel has attributes that belong to God and God alone. In addition, he is addressed as the Lord. If this is the case, then he is not a created being, of course, but God himself who took on some sort of angelic form. Though some had thought it to be God the Father, this would more likely be an instance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth for a short time in a human form. Other times, however, the angel of the Lord is clearly distinguished from the Lord. On these occasions, the angel must be a created being rather than God himself. Well, I hate to end with such an answer of ambiguity, but the fact of the matter is the Bible just doesn't spell it out. And for us, when we have a situation like that, far and away, the safest place to be is a place of ambiguity, because we certainly don't want to pretend like we know something when we don't know it for sure. So it's an intriguing possibility that the angel of the Lord is Jesus. And I think it's Again, definitely, maybe, as a possibility. Well, let's continue reading with Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 1. At the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's temple and speak all the words I have commanded you to speak to all Judah's cities that are coming to worship there. Do not hold back a word. Perhaps they will listen in turn, each from his evil way of life, so that I might relent concerning the disaster that I plan to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. You are to say to them, This is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me by living according to my instruction that I set before you, and by listening to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you time and time again, though you do not listen, I will make this temple like Shiloh. I will make this city an example for cursing for all the nations of the earth. The priests, the prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the temple of the Lord. When he finished the address the Lord had commanded him to deliver to all the people, immediately the priests, the prophets, and all the people took hold of him, yelling, You must surely die! How dare you prophesy in the name of the Lord! This temple will become like Shiloh, and this city will become an uninhabited ruin. Then all the people crowded around Jeremiah at the Lord's temple. When the officials of Judah heard about these things, they went from the king's palace to the Lord's temple and sat at the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's temple. Then the priests and prophets said to the officials and all the people, This man deserves the death sentence because he has prophesied against the city, as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah said to all the officials and all the people, The Lord sent me to prophesy all the words that you have heard against this temple and city. So now, correct your ways and deeds and obey the Lord your God, so that he might relent concerning the disaster he had pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hands. Do to me what you think is good and right. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its residents. For it is certain the Lord has sent me to speak all these things directly to you. Then the officials and all the people told the priests and prophets, This man doesn't deserve the death sentence, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Some of the elders of the land stood up and said to the assembled people, Micah the Morishite prophesied in the days of King Hezekiah of Judah and said to all the people of the Judah, This is what the Lord of armies says. 
Zion will be like a plowed field. Jerusalem will become ruins and the temple's mountain will become a high thicket. Did King Hezekiah of Judah and all of the people of Judah put him to death? Did not the king fear the Lord and plead for the Lord's favor? And did not the Lord relent concerning the disaster he had pronounced against them? We are about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. Another man was also prophesying in the name of the Lord, Uriah son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. King Jehoiakim like, and all of his warriors and all the officials heard his words, and the king tried to put him to death. When Uriah heard, he fled in fear and went to Egypt. But King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. Elnathan, son of Akbar, and certain other men with him went to Egypt. They brought Uriah out of Egypt and took him to King Jehoiakim, who executed him with the sword and threw his corpse into the burial place of the common people. But Ahikam, son of Shaphan, supported Jeremiah, so he was not handed over to the people to be put to death. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard with from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against him. So they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, We know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and description is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for thus that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offscreen for his brother. There were seven brothers. They first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures of the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplace the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting a contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a large number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. 
These, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him, and some said, What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, He seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. Because he was telling the good news about Jesus in the resurrection, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver, a stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this but to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, We'd like to hear you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Arapagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Well, praise God, Lord, let today many others hear of the resurrection and believe. And may you empower those hearing this podcast and listening to it to share your word boldly and without hindrance. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.